Congressman Eric Sorensen hears how mayors want to make downtown and uptown better. It's about bringing our communities back together to this livable central core, which actually is the way that these these towns in most of our cities were developed in the first place. That's coming up on Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on today's show, the first in WGLT series profiling this year's McLean County history makers. Also, climate change is pushing armadillos further north. That's a concern for central Illinois farmers. It's going to affect their crop yield. We don't want that. And the jury foreman in the ComEd bribery trial explains how jurors arrived at four guilty verdicts. There were strings attached for these rules, and that is where the corruption and bribery is. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. Folks that had never had a, a set of hearing aids were always concerned. All of a sudden, oh, you've got, well, yes, I, I wear them too. And, and it's really is helpful. And these things are really kind of nice. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Congressman Eric Sorensen toured Uptown Normal and Downtown Bloomington with each municipality's mayor on Friday. WGLT's Lindsey Jones was there outside with the mayors and the Democrat who represents Illinois' 17th Congressional District. Federal funding requests for various projects in the Twin Cities have already been placed by both Peoria Republican and Congressman Darren LaHood and first-term Congressman and Democrat Eric Sorensen. Those projects include stormwater drainage improvements in Normal and the Locust Colton sewer separation in Bloomington, the funding request totaled more than $15 million. That funding has not been allotted by the government yet. Sorensen said his visit to the Bloomington Normal area is to understand where the money is being spent. For the $2 million requested for Normal's flooding issues in Uptown, Mayor Chris Coos described the problem as the result of a drainage system built for another time. When we developed the uh, sewer system, stormwater system here in the early 2000s, uh, it was more than adequate, but we're getting 100, 150-year rains every year. Sorensen, the former Quad Cities and Rockford area meteorologist turned congressman, framed the town's stormwater flooding issues as less of an infrastructure problem and more of a big-picture problem with climate change. This right here is, is evidence that we're already going to spend money uh, because of what we're doing to our environment. In downtown Bloomington, Mayor Mboka Mulambwe said he planned to tour the downtown area with the House member because... We want to bring to his attention, like the downtown streetscape project. The mayor says downtown's streetscape plans should be drafted by the end of the summer. Which will help us guide uh, some of the work that we're, we're going to. So we're just, you know, it's just kind of a familiarization tour for, for him to kind of see the downtown and get a feel for it and some of the things that we're trying to accomplish. Sorensen also spoke with reporters about other matters while he was in the area Friday, including the debt ceiling. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said the U.S. could default on its bills if the debt ceiling is not raised. And over the weekend, she warned of forthcoming, quote, economic calamity. Of such remarks, Sorensen said, It is too dangerous for us to even threaten a default where our economy is today. 
Sorensen said bipartisan solutions are necessary for the ongoing debate over whether Congress will vote to increase the United States borrowing limit. President Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are set to meet on Tuesday to discuss the debt ceiling for the first time since February. I'm optimistic um, now that the speaker wants to talk with the president about how we're going to solve the problem. But look, this we can't play political gamesmanship on the lives of people. A twin issue with federal funding is also the budget deficit, which is estimated to now be over a trillion dollars. Sorensen indicated he did not support drastic cuts to services like Social Security and Medicare, the largest and mandatory federal spending programs. We're coming out on the other side of the pandemic. Uh, Of course, we need to spend in places where we can uh, because we're talking about people's lives. They need help. The first-term Democrat said he would prefer another measure like tax increases on the nation's wealthiest earners. We need to make sure that the money that's taken in from taxes is spent well. And, and that means not having tax cuts for the wealthy. That doesn't make sense to give the wealthiest 1% a tax cut. And Sorensen also offered reporters his thoughts on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' upcoming visit to central Illinois. Congressman Darren LaHood said the Republican possible presidential hopeful will be his guest at the Peoria Taswell Lincoln Day dinner set for this Friday. It's a GOP donor event. Here's Eric Sorensen. Whatever these national politicians are going to do in the future is up to them. I mean, if if he wants to come and and campaign in central Illinois, maybe it's an opportunity for, for us to be able to say, you know what, we're a welcoming place. Um, we're a great place. I'm Lindsay Jones. Eric Sorensen represents Illinois' 17th Congressional District. That includes the Twin Cities and stretches up into northwestern Illinois. You probably didn't know there is a citizens group in McLean County that studies how the county jail is run. What does this committee think of the jail expansion and the challenges the county has had in staffing it? You'll learn about that tomorrow on WGLT Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. For the next few weeks, WGLT's Lauren Warnicke profiles the 2023 history makers. It begins today with Dottie Bushnell, riding the wave ushered into American kitchens by Julia Child. Bushnell bought the garlic press in 1976, catalyzing a local shop movement in Uptown Normal that persists today. Dottie Bushnell's quaint one-bedroom apartment at Westminster Village is beautifully decorated with artifacts from her travels and, of course, a well appointed kitchen. The longtime proprietor of the garlic press in Uptown Normal uses a walker to get around now, which has a garlic press logo on its seat. For nearly 50 years, the garlic press has been an institution, but Dottie Bushnell is not its original owner. She bought the store about a year after it opened, saw the revitalization of Uptown Normal, and cultivated a culinarily-minded community passionate about shopping local. These are just a few of the reasons that Dottie was selected as a 2023 history maker. Bushnell was born in India and spent parts of her childhood in Uttarakhand, where she attended an international school in the foothills of the Himalayas. Her parents were Christian missionaries. We came back to the States during the war, so we were here for several years and then went back again to India. And I went to the Woodstock School and graduated from high school there. To come back to the States during World War II, you actually went 
by boat, is that correct? We were fortunate enough to travel back and forth from India to the States on steamships. The last one that I was on was the Mauritania. Sometimes I say that's a little bit connected to what I did at the store later because we had a chance to have these ships, dining rooms and menus and that sort of thing. Of course, around these parts, Bushnell is best known as the longtime proprietor of the Garlic Press in Uptown Normal. She and her husband, Paul, lived in Nashville with their young children when a job opportunity for Paul at Illinois Wesleyan University brought the family to the Twin Cities in 1966. We were quite thrilled because we actually were pretty determined that we wanted to raise our family in the North. We had, I think, one week to find a house to live, and we did. (laughs) Dottie Bushnell worked a variety of jobs while raising the couple's four children. She taught at a Montessori school and for a short time was the librarian for the Mennonite School of Nursing. The last thing I did, of course, before before the, the big thing, was I was working in the, as the elementary education coordinator at the First Presbyterian Church, which I did with a friend, Norma Ashbrook, and we worked together very, very well. That was before taking the big jump. <laughs> Let's talk about that big jump. What inspired you to open a store? Well, I was kind of getting to the point where I knew I needed to make an, some other move, to, but and I didn't have any big academic thing in mind that I, you know, I didn't want to be a nurse or a teacher. And I heard about this little store that was for sale. And it just happened that we knew the real estate agent that was helping sell it. So I sort of said to Norma, who I worked with, let's let's just go see it. And we just happened to run into the real estate agent who was also a Wesleyan wife. And uh, Actually, my husband ran into her on the street, and she was in a convertible, so he could talk to her. (laughs) And she said, well, just come on over tonight. I'll take you over tonight. And she took us up to the store and showed us around. And I think my husband and I actually talked all night. And by the end of it all, I said, I can do this. I think I can do this. Obviously, there's something in you that naturally, you know, lended itself to being a a keen businesswoman. And where do you think you learned all of that? I don't know. Just I'd I'd taken care of the finances at home a lot. And so that didn't scare me. I'd been around enough, enough kinds of cooking and so on so that that part seemed like a, a natural. It was when Julia Childs was popular. Lots of people were kind of tuned into the, something happening in the area of foods and cooking. And, and so that made it kind of a natural and, a, and an exciting thing to do. Can you describe what was then known as downtown normal? Uh, <laughs> can you describe the community at that time and compare that to what we know as uptown normal today. There were some good places or a couple good men's clothing stores and a woman's clothing store, but it was mostly just little old buildings. And the store that I, I took over, of course, was very tiny. It was like about 12, 12 feet wide, and, and then it got skinnier <laughs> as I went back. And it gave me a, really gave me a chance to get my feet wet and learn how to do it before I got thrown too deeply into it. When you spent that all night up with your husband talking this through, did you imagine that it would be what it is today? No. You know, in, in fact, there was a part-time employee left over from the original person. 
and she had to teach me how to make change. <laughs> That's how new I was. And I do think the stores made a big difference. I mean, I personally, you know, I'm glad I did it, and how I stumbled through it, I don't know, but I did. And the store has developed way beyond what I thought it would. I wonder if you can say a little more about the store as as kind of a... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, as its own history maker. Well, that part I do believe. I And, you know, I can feel humble about me and what all we did and didn't do, but I think the store has just done wonderfully as far as being a place that people come to. And meanwhile, Bed Bath & Beyond is closed. Right, right. Well, that it sort of points out the big difference in the type of stores. When we were told that Bed Bath & was going to move here, and we thought, oh dear, oh dear, we're going to sell all those things and it's going to hurt us. It was hardly a blip. The Garlic Press moved a few storefronts down from its original location in the 1990s. It operated a cafe and deli next door to the shop from 2005 through 2017. The second storefront is now a popcorn and candy store. Bushnell's daughter, Sarah McManus, and longtime employee Pam Loxon currently operate the business. Stories and conversations around Bloomington Normal in McLean County. This is WGLT Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Armadillos are migrating north. And there was a confirmed sighting in Pekin last year. The animal is a prolific and pernicious digger. Its expanding range could eventually have a big impact on farmers and gardeners in central Illinois. Anand Deshwal is a conservation biologist and assistant professor at Bradley University. He's tracking these species' movements and predicting where they may crop up soon. He recently spoke with Tim Shelley from sister station WCBU in this edition of Food Trek. The armadillos are actually benefiting a lot from milder winters. It gives them more time to move up further north. They can tolerate those conditions. They do not hibernate. And they are having a severe impact on our gardens, on our foundations for the houses, because they dig, and uh, agriculture. And see, armadillos dig. And agriculture lands is not good for a farmer. It's going to affect their crop yield. We don't want that. And as the armadillo migrates north, it's, it's also affecting the overall general, um, you know, ecology because it's, it's competing with native animals, right, in terms of resources. There's a finite number of resources. Uh, what other animal species are affected by this? There are some animals that are actually very positively impacted by it, uh, which was interesting. So uh, a colleague of mine uh, Dr. Brett D. Gregorio at University of Arkansas. Uh, what he did was he set out camera traps. Um, and these are basically are game cameras. Um, and he set them out near the burrows of armadillos to see what impact they are having. Are they having a positive impact or a negative impact? And they found that animals like possums, raccoons, were very frequently using the burrows made by an armadillo. They were going in there for escaping the predators, escaping uh, heavy precipitation or escaping the winter or just to breed down there. Guess what? There were birds using those burrows. So in terms of positive, yes, there are 
positive impacts that are happening. They are facilitating the environment more for these organisms, which is a good thing. Uh, but yes, they are also omnivores and very generalist omnivores. What that means is they'll basically eat anything. And when we talk about the farmers, you mentioned armadillos like to dig. Uh, now, some of our big crops here in Illinois, as most of our listeners know, you know, corn, soybeans, things like that. Uh, what impacts they have on those crops? One thing is armadillos, they forage by uh, or find food by digging holes. And they also breed um, uh by digging holes and they sleep in those and they escape winter in those holes. Now the size, width and uh, depth of these holes vary. Some of them are small like 2.5 inches, but some of them can be big and especially if they're burrowing over there. And if they are burrowing in an agriculture field, all that means is that that portion of the land, you can, your crop would not grow. And depending on how many armadillos there are, how many burrows there are, and how many uh, how many uh, digs they are doing just for foraging versus uh, burrowing, that would affect them. So with the with the gardeners and the farmers with armadillos moving northward, um, obviously the, the the trend of milder winters has been going on for some time and will likely continue. Uh, as climate change is also continuing. So for, for farmers, gardeners, growers in general, let's just say, what what measures can you take uh, to discourage armadillos from, you know, coming on your land and destroying what you're growing? I mean, is, is there anything you can do? Here Here's the sad answer to that. We sat and we brainstormed a lot around that, that, is it the soil type that is preventing them? Uh, what what can we do to prevent them from coming? And they are they're tenacious. They can jump quite high. They can dig and burrow, like we spoke about. They can walk underwater in a river. I've seen them happily walking around with snow on the ground. The best action that we can take right now that will help the farmers um, and homeowners a lot is actually work towards mitigating climate change. That was Bradley University professor and biologist Anant Deshwal speaking with Tim Shelley from sister station WCBU. They spoke about the northward spread of armadillos. Support for WGLT agriculture coverage comes from Growmark and its FS members, your trusted advisor in all your ag decisions. This week, jurors reached a momentous verdict that will go down in the lore of Illinois corruption scandals. A federal jury in Chicago voted to convict four former ComEd executives and lobbyists. They were found guilty on every count they faced that was part of a scheme to bribe former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan. Political reporter Dave McKinney spoke with a jury foreman who explained how they came to that conclusion. Before getting the summons that she'd been called in for jury duty, Sarah Goldenberg didn't consider herself politically active. The 34-year-old was raised in Arlington Heights and is now a data analyst for a logistics firm in Chicago's northern suburbs. She says she'd follow big news, but it wasn't part of her daily habit. So how much did you know coming into this experience about Mike Madigan? 
Not much, just faintly from what I remember growing up. Um, and then as I learned throughout the case, I would remember, oh, I remember that happened. I remember his name. As the trial went on, Goldenberg says she got a picture of just how powerful Madigan was, even calling him crafty and manipulative. Goldenberg was the jury foreman, sitting through seven weeks of testimony in the biggest corruption case Illinois has seen in a decade. The four defendants were convicted of awarding Madigan with no work jobs and contracts at ComEd for his political allies in exchange for favorable legislation in Springfield. Goldenberg equated the no work jobs to winning the lottery. I said, well, this sounds like the perfect job. I would love to get a job where I get paid to do nothing and I could live the good life because who wouldn't want that? But I would want that without strings attached. And there were strings attached for these roles. And that is where the corruption and bribery is. Goldenberg says some of the most effective evidence that stuck in her mind came from a government mole. And she wants to see him punished, too. Fidel Marquez was a ComEd executive and has already pleaded guilty for his role in the scheme, and he wore a wire against the four defendants. Goldenberg recounted one of the videotapes Marquez recorded of defendant Jay Doherty, the ComEd lobbyist who was the pass-through for taking money from ComEd and giving it to the no-work subcontractors. Even though it's just them talking, he still talks about how it's just between you and me. And then came along, again, this is just you and me talking, I don't even know who else knows this. How they pay me, and he puts up four fingers to say that one of the guys has paid $4,000. Well, he said, you know, just, we're going to pay him every month. Which is part of that idea that it's supposed to be private conversation between us. Doherty was convicted, along with ComEd's former CEO, Ann Promajori, former executive John Hooker, and Michael McLean, a one-time lobbyist who was also a confidant of Madigan's. Madigan was indicted separately and is scheduled to stand trial next year. Goldenberg says she wasn't aware of Madigan's legal problems during the trial, but after sitting through the testimony, she feels Madigan likely committed a crime and bears a lot of the blame for the scheme. This was specifically hiring for Madigan for the sole purpose to extend his political reach and put money in the pockets of people he chose to, with the intent of never having them used, never giving them any work to do. And she says that even though Madigan has resigned from public office, there's something about how Madigan wielded his power that's unsettling to her. But there's a force that comes from that. It's a dangerous force that can come from Madigan. And it's that type of force that we don't want to have repeated, in my opinion, within the government. Goldenberg says sitting through this experience now has her interested in getting more involved in the news and getting more involved in local and state government. This is Dave McKinney. And that is Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. And thanks for listening on 89.1 FM, WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network.